Hi, I'm Megan from Rochester, New York. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio Welcome to The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne, one of my all-time most requested guests, one of the people at the very top of my must-have on The Sound of Young America guest list is our guest today, Jack Handy. Ideas for Paintings by Jack Handy Because I love art, I am offering the following ideas for paintings to all struggling artists out there. Some of those artists may be thinking, Hey, I've got good ideas of my own. Really? Then why are you struggling? These ideas, all 12 of them, are free of charge. I only ask that when you have completed a painting, as a courtesy to me, you sign it, Jack Handy and your name or initials. And if the painting is sold, I get approximately all the money. Good luck. Let's get painting. Idea number one, Stampede of Nudes. The trouble with most paintings of nudes is that there isn't enough nudity. It's usually just one woman lying there and you're looking around going, aren't there any more nudes? This idea solves that. What has frightened these nudes? Is it the lightning in the background? Or did one of the nudes just spook? You don't know, and this creates tension. It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. My guest on the program is Jack Handy. Uh, He's best known, of course, as the creator of Deep Thoughts, the series of books and uh, Saturday Night Live features. He was a writer for Saturday Night Live for many years and has written various other things for television. Most recently, he's put out a book called What I'd Say to the Martians and Other Veiled Threats, a collection of his writings largely for The New Yorker magazine. Uh, Jack, welcome to The Sound of Young America. Thank you. Happy to be here. Um, uh, You're a guy who a lot of people think is a fictional character, so um, I want to talk a little bit about real-life Jack Handy. Um, You started your writing career as a a journalist, not a a television writer. Um, How did that come about? Um, I started out as editor of my high school paper, actually, and then got a journalism scholarship. But uh, I always sort of preferred writing a humor column wherever I went and went worked for a few newspapers in the Southwest. Um, and I would, you know, I, you know, I enjoyed I enjoyed reporting, usually feature stories. But my main aim was the humor column. So finally, I uh, I made the jump into uh in actual comedy writing. How did the how did the jump happen? The jump happened actually right here uh, in Santa Fe. In a way, I was living um, uh, up on Upper Canyon Road in uh, the upper seventies, and it was like a hundred and fifty year old adobe house that was split in half. And I lived on one side, and Steve Martin, the comedian, lived on the other side. And this was before he was famous. He had. Uh, he was just starting to do his nightclub act and travel around and decided he wanted to base himself out of Santa Fe. 
And uh, he'd come over and play his banjo and stuff and got to know him a little bit. And I moved on to another journalism job in uh, San Antonio working for the paper down there. And uh, one night I turned on The Tonight Show and saw Steve Martin. <laughs> I would go, hey, my neighbor with an arrow through his head. And next thing you know, he was the hottest thing going. And I sent him some of my humor columns and said, can I write for your act? And he said, yeah. And so I started contributing some jokes to his act. And when he got his first TV special in L.A., uh, he called me out there to work on it, so that was my proverbial lucky break, I guess. What did you think of his act at the time? It was very uh, different from the stand-up comedy that had gone before it. Yeah, it was not... Uh, I'm not crazy about satire with a capital S, so uh, it was uh, it was just totally unabashedly silly, which was... Uh, it was great. I loved it. I mean, it was just absurdist. What was the next step in your career after uh, after writing for those Steve Martin television specials? I did some more specials in uh, L.A. I liked I liked writing on specials because you just had to do a little bit of work. <laughs> it only lasted for a week or so. Uh, and then uh, I got uh, I, I got an offer to work on um, uh, Lauren Michaels' first primetime show. It was called I don't, I don't know if many people saw it. It was called The New Show. And it was a prime time in the early 80s. And so I moved to New York and thought I was going to be there forever. And uh, we were quickly the last in the ratings <laughs> in prime time. <laughs> and, but it had a, an amazingly good writing staff. It was just, I, my theory is just that sketch shows don't go in prime time. Um, and then I was back in L.A. for a little bit working on a few more shows. Uh, and then Lauren Michaels took over Saturday Night Live again. So he called me back to New York and I moved again. When you were still in, uh, in in Texas and New Mexico, um, wh- what kind of impact did the the launch of Saturday Night Live have on you? Oh, it was it was huge. Yeah, I remember it was a, it was a cult thing, like Steve Martin, and uh, uh, I think I even sent some uh, sent some humor columns of mine to Saturday Night Live at the time, and I got their forum letter back, which was something like. Uh, you can send us some nude photos, but, you know, we don't want this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, eventually Steve Martin recommended me to Lauren Michaels, and uh, that's how I got on the new show. So uh, uh, that's how that came about. When you started writing for Saturday Night Live, it was, as you mentioned, when when Lauren Michaels had returned to the show after leaving for a while somewhat acrimoniously, um, and it was kind of the first period of reinvention on the show, um, or the the first Lorne Michaels-headed period of reinvention on the show. Um, what was it like to be on this show that had this huge cultural cachet built in, but also had been, you know, almost run into the ground and clearly needed to uh, be a new thing? Um, there was... There was a lot of discord on the show. Uh, the The cast was sort of put together from people who were already known, like Robert Downey Jr. and Randy Quaid. And the ratings started out great, uh, but the critics attacked us like crazy. And then the ratings gradually slid all the way down, you know, to where um, I think there was some question about whether they were going to bring the show back or not. Uh, so it was it was kind of an acrimonious year that first year back. Uh, your writing uh, has such a strong voice. Um, do you feel like you found that voice very early in your career, or, or was it a long process? I, I think it took a process. I mean, you start out just writing what 
you think is funny and maybe imitative of other people, and then gradually you start realizing what you think is funny sort of fits into a character. Um, my stuff on Saturday Night Live is usually uh, little boy-oriented stuff, and that's sort of what I still write, I mean, about <laughs> about dinosaurs and cowboys and monsters and things like that. So I ended up writing things like uh, Unfrozen Caveman Lawyer and Twinsis the Cat and just, uh, you know, anything with dinosaurs and monsters and cowboys was usually mine. We were talking on the email about uh, my favorite Saturday Night Lives, one of my favorite Saturday Night Live sketches ever and maybe my favorite that you wrote, although you've written a lot of great ones. Uh, which I just had to guess was yours based on the voice, which was tales of fraud and malfeasance and railroad hiring <laughs> practices. Yeah. I think it was on pretty much the tail end of the show. But <laughs> uh, since, yeah, since you pointed that out to me, I reread it. That was a very silly piece. <laughs> I mean, I, I remember that. And it's like, what, that was like 1994. So that's 14 years later. And I wow. was, well, you know, 12 or 13 when it aired. So Wow, you're a connoisseur. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and to pick out that I wrote that—that's funny. <laughs> I only—I only wish that I could—I only wish that I could play a clip from it, but apparently it's been completely lost to the to the dusts of time. Um, so t- tell me about what kind of things you wrote uh, early on in your tenure at Saturday Night Live, for for good or for ill. Like, w- what are you proud of in the in the er, in your earliest time on the show, and uh, what are you um, what do you remember as being particularly uh, not proud? Um, boy, that's a tough question. Um, you know, uh, boy, I'm trying to think of some of the pieces I wrote. Uh, a lot of times the things that easiest are to control are film pieces. But uh, uh, I guess one of my least proud moments <laughs> was when I had forgotten to, to make the changes on a sketch. I think it was some sketch about zombies. And uh, I was uh, backstage already having a beer and going, wow, this sketch is going great. And I forgot to make the changes on the cue cards. Uh, and the, and the actors are all sort of standing there looking at each other going, uh, what do we say? And then finally someone picked up and just sort of mumbled something, but that was one of my least proud moments, I guess. (laughs) Uh, but, uh, uh. I don't know what my proudest moment it was. I, I do you remember? Do you remember? A lot of people remember the first sketch they got on the air. Do you remember the first sketch that you got on the air, or the, or the first one that uh, you felt like was really yours? Um, the first. Well, I, I wrote one for the new show called Mountain Mike uh, with John Candy that went over pretty well, and then I wrote a sketch. I wrote a sketch called uh, No Camera which was basically about uh, a couple uh, going through Yellowstone Park or something, sort of actually based on a real event, when, and they forgot their camera. And so, of course, they start seeing everything from Bigfoot to Martians <laughs> to Jackie Onassis and stuff. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and it took, like, forever. To, something always screwed up with that sketch. And it, took, it finally got on, I think, with Candace Bergen and Buck Henry, but it you know, it, it failed like twice, and uh, you you just, you know, I think that's the hardest thing when they, you just go, I thought this was funny, but I guess not, so I don't know. Deep Thoughts uh, didn't start airing until uh, uh, the early 1990s, um, but I know that you had uh, 
pitched the idea for a while. And in fact, it had kind of deeper roots, maybe even than Saturday Night Live. Can, can you tell us where, where they came from? Um, I started writing them long, way back. I mean, they were sort of parodies of those uh, kind of books that came out in the 70s that were sort of diaries and they had, you know, sensitive diary kind of stuff. And it started out as kind of a parody of that. And then it kind of took on a character of its own. Is there anything more beautiful than a beautiful, beautiful flamingo flying across in front of a beautiful sunset? And he's carrying a beautiful rose in his beak. And also he's carrying a very beautiful painting with his feet. And also, you're drunk. And I had them in National Lampoon and uh, a college magazine called Ampersand that I'm not sure, but I don't think it's around anymore. Um, And then actually Michael Nesmith, the monkey guy, uh, put them on his show. It was another brief sketch show in primetime. That's actually a good show called Television Parts. Uh, but I couldn't get them on Saturday Night Live, and, and I couldn't get them published. Uh, you know, no one wanted to publish them, and so I thought, well, the way to get things published is to get them famous and get them on TV. And so uh, I started pushing in to get them on Saturday Night Live, but, you know, they didn't want... They didn't really want a writer to have his name on things, you know. They uh, they didn't like that, so they fought me on it for a while, and I sort of bided my time and wrote a lot of good sketches for them. And then finally, they said, "Well, okay, we got to give them give him this as dessert." Um, and of course, the irony is that people think Jack Handy is a made up name, so <laughs> it it didn't work at all. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I still go into like a hotel or something and. People will go like, "Oh, you have the name from that as the same name as that guy on Saturday Night Live," and I'll go like, "Oh, that's me." And they go, "Isn't it funny? The same name as that guy on Saturday Night Live." They they just don't believe you <laughs> that you're the person. When you die, if you go somewhere where they ask you a bunch of questions about your life and what you learned and all, I think a good way to get out of it is just to say, "No speak English." It's interesting that you uh, that you fought so hard to get uh, to get your name associated with this bit because on on Saturday Night Live, I mean, one of the things that I was thinking about as I was uh, uh, researching your career is that you know r- sketches on Saturday Night Live are not credited specifically to writers, so I really have no idea. I mean, I only was able to guess that, uh, you know, Tales of right. Fraud and Malfeasance and Railroad Hiring Practices was yours, <laughs> basically because it had one of those, uh, well, I mean, it was definitely in your voice, also had one of those little fake sponsors, which a lot of your sketches had <laughs> yeah. fake sponsors. Yeah, I like to do the sponsors. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you want to tell me why you like to do the sponsors? How about that? I don't know. I, it, it's a way of, of uh, putting a joke in early. <laughs> that, that doesn't have anything to do with the sketch. So, you know, maybe prime the audience or something. But, uh, and, and I've always sort of liked fake products as jokes. I don't know why. Uh, what were one, some of the ones were uh, uh, big fat beans, big, big <laughs> fat beans, so you don't have to eat all those little beans. <laughs> and one was, one was dog assassin. It was like when you, when you don't have the heart to put him down yourself, you know, and just call, <laughs> call dog assassin and showed it, showed a cute looking dog in his, you know, in a rifle scope. Uh, but I, I think it's an easy way. Yeah, you kind of get the audience primed and, you know, it makes it makes the piece denser. When not in use, Happy Fun Ball should be returned to its special container and kept under refrigeration. 
Failure to do so relieves the makers of Happy Fun Ball, Wacky Products Incorporated, and its parent company, Global Chemical Unlimited, of any and all liability. Ingredients of Happy Fun Ball include an unknown glowing substance which fell to Earth, presumably from outer space. Happy Fun Ball has been shipped to our troops in Saudi Arabia and is also being dropped by our warplanes on Iraq. Do not taunt Happy Fun Ball. Happy Fun Ball comes with a lifetime guarantee. Happy Fun Ball! Except no substitutes! People my age have experienced years of like their fifth grade math teacher reading deep thoughts at the end of every <laughs> class or something like that. Um, but did you have uh, did you have a feeling of the impact that it was having uh, early on when they first started to run? Uh, yeah, they they got it, it was weird when they when they went on they 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 got pretty popular pretty quickly. I was surprised and to the point where I was almost going, ah, oh, don't put so many on. Like they would put four on in a show or something like that. Uh, so it, yeah, it, it got noticed pretty quickly. I was surprised. It feels like deep thoughts are, um, in a way, the the apotheosis of this um, of this character perspective that you often write from as as Jack Handy. Um, how would you? I mean, besides being interested in in cowboys and Martians, um, how would you describe that character? Um, it's a character who um, who thinks he's normal and wants the other people to empathize with him is normal, I think, but is actually sort of psychotic and, uh, you know, dangerous, but, uh, but has a logic that, you know, he thinks is, is quite normal. So he's, he's not, he's not a, uh, an insane person, but he's just sort of a, a psychotic person. <laughs> Sometimes when I feel like killing someone, I do a little trick to calm myself down. I'll go over to the person's house and ring the doorbell. When the person comes to the door, I'm gone. But you know what I've left on the porch? A jack-o'-lantern with a knife in the side of its head that says, You. After that, I usually feel a lot better and no harm done. How exactly do you draw the line between the two? Yeah, I know. Well, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah it, it can't be a per. You know, he can't do things that like you know shooting people or something. Or, or uh, but it, you know, if he says sort of mean things to kids and makes them cry, he thinks that's perfectly acceptable. To me, clowns aren't funny. In fact, they're kind of scary. I've wondered where this started, and I think it goes back to the time I went to the circus. And a clown killed my dad. You know, I I heard you talking to uh, my public radio international colleague, Faith Saley. Oh. um, And uh, I heard you tell her something that really blew me away, which was that uh, the deep thought, which is about uh, telling a child, driving (laughs) a child to Disneyland, but instead driving the child to a burnt out warehouse and telling him that Disneyland burned down. Right was inspired by something that actually happened to you? Yeah, it was actually. My, I guess I was feeling mean, but uh, my sister was out with her son <laughs> who was about six or something. And for some reason it just popped out. He was going, I want to go to Disneyland. I want to go to Disneyland. I was going, oh, didn't you hear Disneyland burned down? And he was like, he started crying. <laughs> and I, and I, felt, I felt really bad. But uh, yeah, that was based on a real incident. What did your sister think of that? Oh, I'm sure she was mad at me. <laughs> Is she just used to it? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but he's now a grown 
man, and so uh, it's probably scarred him somehow, but uh, uh, he's he did okay. <laughs> it's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Jack Handy. His new book is called What I'd Say to the Martians and Other Veiled Threats. Hi, it's Jesse. This show is sort of the grand finale of the Maximum Fun Drive 2. It runs through the day after I'm putting this out, but it's just in its final death throes. I want to take this opportunity to thank the more than 400 people who've donated to support MaximumFun.org and The Sound of Young America and Jordan Jesse Go and the blog and all the other things that we do. It was really touching, and um, you know, it was one of the first opportunities in my life uh, to do the classic Hollywood douchebag move and say when people support you that it was humbling. Uh, but it did feel kind of humbling. So thank you so much to everyone who supported the show. If you haven't yet, of course, it's not too late. You can go to MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. We've got prizes through the end of the day. And frankly, you know, if you're a day late or something like that, you hear it on this podcast and then you want to donate, you can just send me an email and I'll try and make sure you get prizes. It's not you know, I'm not really going to stick it to you over it. But there's only one real day left in the pledge drive. So if you want to donate, do it now. And to everyone who already has and to all the folks who've supported the show uh, and all the shows and the website over the years, thank you so much. Let's get back to this awesome Jack Handy interview, huh? Isn't he great? It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. Let's get back to my interview with television writer, author, and humorist Jack Handy. I've heard that your writing process involves throwing a ball against a wall over and over indefinitely. Is that a fair characterization? That is a total lie. Uh, no, it's, <laughs> it actually is true. Uh, yeah, that's that's how I got. Uh, well, actually, I write sketches that way too. But deep thoughts. Uh, throwing a ball against, laying on my back and throwing it against the ceiling sort of over and over again. And then uh, in the case of Deep Thoughts, you write down, write them down. And then when you've got a huge stack of them, you go through and start weeding. But uh, yeah, that's how I do it. I sort of imagine it as being like, I once read an article in The New Yorker about how David Milch wrote uh, Deadwood. And it involves him being like high on back pain medication and just like this cadre of uh of writers surrounding him transcribing what <laughs> he like his his mad ramblings in iambic pentameter that's where i imagine deep thoughts come from <laughs> i wish it was that uh you know flowing but usually it's starts and stops uh that would be nice if i could just get loaded and start rambling <laughs> but uh <laughs> just get your cats to transcribe it yeah really really uh yeah, no, it's it's I don't know. I I think somehow uh, deep thoughts have this uh, uh, there's this idea that they're easy to write because you see fake ones a lot. Um, but for me anyway, they're hard to write, and you know it's they don't flow easily. So how how many do you how many do you write for every one that you've published? If if I wrote, you know, if I wrote. Six or seven in a day, that would be a good day. And then of the ones that are published, probably nine out of ten I throw out. So um, that may be surprising when people see some of them. They may go, wait a minute, the other ones are must be pretty horrible. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there, it, there's a big attrition rate on them. Were there any that you're, were your, like, particular faves? Uh, 
I guess I've always sort of liked the one about uh, – um, I like the one about uh, if you if you fall off the Sears Tower, go limp because uh, <laughs> maybe people will try to catch you because you look like a dummy. Because, hey, free dummy. Hey, free dummy. <laughs> I don't know. It has a – it twists back on itself kind of twice there. but. <laughs> Man, I've spent a lot, way too much of my life thinking about the phrase, hey, free dummy. Hey, free dummy. <laughs> Copyrighted by Jack Handy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, what other ones do I like? Uh, I like the one about uh, uh, children shouldn't be having... Uh, I think we should make the world safe for our children, but not not our children's children, because I don't think children should be having sex. Is one, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. My old favorite was um, uh, if there were two guys, and one was named Hambone, and the other was named Flippy. Which do you think would like dolphins more? <laughs> Hambone, right? But you'd be wrong. It's, it's Flippy. Flippy. <laughs> oh, wait, Flippy, right? <laughs> Jeez, I ruined that one. <laughs> That's not even a joke the way I said it. Okay, let's talk about something else. Um, you wrote for Saturday Night Live for a, a relatively long time. A lot of people um, seem to kind of go in and out the door of uh, Saturday Night Live. They get burned out. Right. Why did you stay so long? What What was it that, that kept you there? Uh, the money. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it, there's a couple of things. I, I used to get burned out, and, and I would, you know, at the end of the season, I would I, I had a summer house here in Santa Fe, and I'd come back and I'd say, I'm never going back to that show, and you know, it's horrible. It just bakes your brain. And then, you know, after a few months off and they offer you more money and you go, well, maybe I can do one more year. Um, but also there's it's probably one of the few shows I could write on because, you know, you, you're not I don't like to write for characters I didn't create and I don't like to be rewritten. And that show is probably one of the few shows where you have that, you know, where you. You, when we would write a, a sketch, we wouldn't write in uh, uh, Fireman Number One and Fireman Number Two. We would put, you know, Mike Myers and Adam Sandler. So, so you had that power there too, where you actually cast the pieces. So, so the uh, the cast had to be nice to you. But it's probably one of the few shows where I I was not uh, forcibly rewritten at all. You know, they would say, "Don't you think we should take this out?" You know, and and, um, you know, you didn't have to. Uh, I I remember this one sketch I wrote called uh, uh, Sore Toe with Randy Quaid. And he, basic, the basic gag was he had a big sore toe, but he kept inviting his toe to get hit uh, inadvertently going, you know, son, I think there's a nail loose down there on the floorboard by my sore toe. Why don't you get a hammer and pound it in there, you know, and. Hey, Dad, look at my new snapping turtle I just got. I'll put him down here by your sore toe. And, uh, I, you know, I couldn't think of a way to end it. And finally, I just came up with this stupid non sequitur way. Uh, Jerry Hall, Mick Jagger's wife, was the uh, was the host. And the the ending was something like Dad just went down. Dad went down the basement. And it was like Jerry Hall just says something like, Your father has gone and hung himself, which was a total non sequitur. <laughs> but it made us all laugh backstage. Well, Mick Jagger's like a friend of Lauren Michaels, and he was just lobbying like, no, no, you, you got to make him change that ending. It doesn't make sense. It's stupid, you know. But I didn't change it, and they, they didn't make me. So 
long story short, that's one of the appeals of Saturday Night Live is, is uh, you know, you control your work, the writers, the producers, and and nobody makes you uh, change things, you know. So <laughs> Un- Unfrozen Caveman Lawyer is pretty much uh, America's favorite Saturday Night Live sketch ever. Wow. As far as I'm concerned. Yeah. <laughs> I'd say, I mean, it's a unanimous declaration on my part. Don't get me wrong. There's no evidence to back this up. <laughs> Um, tell me about, uh, tell me about, uh, how you came up with that idea and wrote it and when, and what it was like to make it. Um, the idea, uh, like I said, it, it was a little boy idea cause you know, you think cavemen and then like, uh, you know, unfrozen guy that they pull out <laughs> and I, you know, I kicked around a couple of ideas for it. I mean, one was was just like the caveman melted into a big puddle of mush and the scientists were, were fighting about whose fault it was or something. And then, I, you know, I don't know how, what what synapse jumped uh, to make make him a lawyer, but um, but I just thought of it and thought of not only a lawyer, but sort of a sleazy lawyer who played upon his cavemanity. Whatever. <laughs> uh, and it went on, it, you know, it went to read through and, it didn't get. It did okay. Got a few laughs, and then I think it was on late, late in the show, and and uh, and uh, you know I sort of got a following, and we, you know, we kept doing it. But uh, Phil Hartman was great in that. Uh, uh, he grasped it right away, uh, as he did most things. So another one of your um, really sterling pieces of your legacy is uh, Tunses. Um, a cat who knew how to drive. (laughs) Toots is the driving cat, the cat who can drive a car. He drives around all over the town. Toots is the driving cat. Toots is the cat who could drive a car. Honey, you won't believe it. Toots can drive a car. Tunes is our cat? Yeah, come on, I'll show you. What a perfect day for a drive. Isn't that pretty? (laughs) It's a fantastic day. Yeah. (laughs) See, I I told you he could drive. said he could drive. Well, I thought he could. I saw him up there fooling around with the steering wheel, and I I guess I just assumed he could drive. That's okay, honey. Anybody would think that. Hey, look! He's driving away! I guess he can drive. Yeah! Just not very well. He drives around all over the town Toots is the driving cat um, tell me where this sketch came from. And also, sub-question, sub-question A, <laughs> I don't remember this. I, I guess I missed it when it aired, but I guess there was a Tunes's special. What? How can you construct a special out of that joke? Well, we, we, we did a bunch of... Uh, I, I actually did a pilot for NBC. I wrote it, and my friend John Fortenberry directed it uh, really well. But it was basically... Uh, sketches in the vein of Tunsis, you know, uh, 
one was called Coach Dobbs about a a you know, little league coach who kept getting hit in the head by the ball. Uh, <laughs> and um, think pieces, in other words. Yeah, yeah. And Scruffy the Rat, I think, was another one. Uh, yeah, think pieces exactly. And uh, uh, it, you know, another uh, example of sketch be- sketch shows just not going in prime time. I think, uh, but it didn't even get picked up. But uh, uh, I think they put out a DVD of it. Uh, you, you had a cat. You had a cat named Tunsus at the time. I had a cat named Tunsus. Yeah, and uh, I don't know where the idea of the driving cat came from, but uh, that was another piece that that didn't. You know, it it, it was with Steve Martin. It, it did okay at read through, but it was another case where visually it worked a lot better. You know, I mean the the the, the puppe, puppeteer uh, Bob Flanagan did did a great job on it, and uh, so. Um, yeah, I was like blown away. It was the last last show of the season one year, and that's all I heard about at the party was how people loved that. Boy, you you, you know when you strike a chord because <laughs> people come up to you at at the party and have a drink in their hands and give it to you. So <laughs> so that yeah that that went over well. That was a big hit. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I'm just a caveman. I fell in some ice and later got thawed out by some of your scientists. Your world frightens and confuses me. Sometimes the honking horns of your traffic make me want to get out of my BMW and run off into the hills or whatever. Sometimes when I get a message on my fax machine, I wonder, did little demons get inside and type it? I don't know. My primitive mind can't grasp these concepts. But there is one thing I do know. When a man, like my client, slips and falls on a sidewalk in front of a public library, then he is entitled to no less than $2 million in compensatory damages and $2 million in punitive damages. Thank you. It's funny that you mentioned uh, not writing for characters that other people created. One of your more high-profile projects uh, since Saturday Night Live was a remake of Mr. Ed that, that I don't think it never aired, but was a, a pretty high-profile project at, at Fox. Um, it was. <laughs> That's news to me. <laughs> uh, oh. I am so proud of. Yes. No. That I, that was probably the. Low mark of my career, redoing a writing a rewrite of Mr. Ed. <laughs> and we should be specific that, if, unless I'm mistaken, I think it was a an urban rewrite of Mr. Ed. Yes, yeah, yeah. That was the that was the idea, and I thought, no, this this is just lame. And a friend of mine, as a comedy writer, said that idea is so lame it'll probably go, you know. And so I took the bait, and <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but it was kind of a funny sketch or script, I thought, but went nowhere, I guess. How did you start writing for The New Yorker? Um, I just, I, 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 I sent, I guess it was in the 90s or something. I, I, I sent five people. I sort of have an in there. I, I, I know uh, the Shouts and Murmur, uh, Murmurs editor, Susan Morrison, from the old days. But uh, I sent, in, I wrote five pieces up like in the 90s and I 
I thought, well, if I get one in, uh, you know, it'll be good, but at least I'll have five times at bat. And uh, lo and behold, like all five got in. So I was, I was really surprised and, uh, and it, it's fun. I, that, that's really my favorite form of writing is, is magazine humor pieces because your name's on it and you can control it. And, um, you know, it's, I don't know. There's something more pure about it, I guess. My Speech to the Martians by Jack Handy. People of Mars, you say we are brutes and savages. But let me tell you one thing. If I could get loose from this cage you have me in, I would tear you guys a new Martian asshole. You say we are violent and barbaric, but has any one of you come up to my cage and extended his hand? Because if he did, I would jerk it off and eat it right in front of him. Mmm, that's good Martian, I would say. We are a warlike species, you claim, and you show me films of Earth battles to prove it. But I have seen all the films about 20 times. Get me some new films, or so help me, if I ever get out of here, I will empty my laser pistol on everyone I see, even pets. You point to your long tradition of living peacefully with Earth, but you know what I point to? Your stupid heads. You say there is much your civilization could teach ours, but perhaps there is something that I could teach you, namely how to scream like a parrot when I put your big Martian head in a vice. You claim there are other intelligent beings in the galaxy besides Earthlings and Martians. Good, then we can attack them together, and after we're through attacking them, we'll attack you. I came here in peace, seeking gold and slaves, but you have treated me like an intruder. But maybe it is not me who is the intruder, but you. No, not me, you, stupid. Do you find it challenging to uh, to create humor that doesn't have a, a, a voice uh, to animate it, that doesn't have a, a performer attached to it? No, uh, you, you just kind of, it's different. It's sort of left brain, right brain kind of thing. I mean, when you're thinking... Um, when you're thinking for television, a lot of times that you're just thinking of something funny and sort of accidentally it comes out in your, in your overall, in your voice, you know, like your theme. Uh, uh, but may, a lot of times you think, at least the way I would think, you think of a funny image and then you kind of try to think of a rationale to explain that. Uh, whereas for, you know, magazine writing or something, you're usually starting off with the character itself and you're thinking like, oh, what what would this character uh, like to pontificate about or something? You know, it, it usually originates that way rather than – for television, I usually think visually. I, I, I would always write things, that, you know, rocket ships and stuff and, you know, um, uh, one of the sketches I wrote was like uh, a James Bond bit. Comedy writers love James Bond, by the way, but uh, but it, you know I wrote a, a, a James Bond bit where I think Christopher Walken was the uh, he was the evil villain, but his lair wasn't completed yet. They were still working on it, you know, and, and they and they brought James Bond in, and he's like, no, no, don't bring him in yet, you know, we're still. But it was a huge set, and it looked really cool. So I, I usually thought, thought <laughs> you know, there's guys welding in the background, and there was a spot in the foreground where he was going to going to put his piranha tank but uh <laughs> uh but yeah I, I i like i like the big you know it's television you should you know i never really like the ones where they're sitting there unless it's just a totally absurd idea or something but uh yeah you you, you think you think visually more in television obviously i guess what do you have to do to sustain this character's voice this kind of 
impetuous, childlike, twisted character who animates a lot of these pieces over the course of a, a relatively large number of words in a in a New Yorker piece, for example. Yeah, it, it, it's difficult sometimes. I mean, uh, you find yourself confined to pieces that the character would do because, you know, when you start out writing humor, a lot of times you, you just write funny lists and, and funny, you know, a, you think of a premise that, you know, pretty much anyone could think of. And so in a way you get narrower and narrower, narrower as you get older because you you only want to do that character. Um, and so you you just try to think of, you know, you write down a bunch of jokes. Usually if I come up with a premise, I'll write down three or four days worth of jokes and then you see which ones would seem to fl- make the piece flow and which are consistent with the character. How you keep it fresh, I don't know. I mean, um, maybe he'll have to die soon. I don't know. <laughs> and a new character, <laughs> a new character emerge. I don't know. I, I want to ask you how your um, how you feel like your your writing has changed or or your humor perspective has changed over the course of this career. I mean, you're. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think I read in the newspaper, 59 years old now. 59. Um, what is what is different about 59-year-old Jack Handy from 29-year-old Jack Handy? Um, I think you... Uh, I think you're more relaxed in the ideas that you like. And, you know, you're not... You're not well, of course, in television, you have to come up with ideas every week. And so there's that pressure is gone but um you're more i think you're more relaxed in the ideas that that you find comfortable and uh and i don't know not less desperation i think in coming up with a good idea and making it work is just sort of you know if it flows it flows why did you um move from new york and the at least the secondary center of the entertainment industry to uh, Santa Fe, where, where I'm talking with you now. Um, I have a girlfriend here that my wife doesn't know about. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and she insisted. You know, she can get pretty nasty. Uh, right. And she said, "No, uh, you know, we 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 sort of we had an apartment in New York that we lived in for like 15 years, and the guy never raised our rent, and then he wanted wanted us out of there, and we started looking around at." Um, apartments in New York to buy. And I don't know, it just got, it was just kind of depressing because you, you know, they wanted like a million and a half dollars for a place that like you lived in in college. So you just go, oh, maybe, you know, and we had come to Santa Fe in summers and my wife really liked it here. And uh, so we said, well, let's just go down there and see how it works out. So I still kind of, I still miss New York a lot, but not as much as I used to, I think. I mean, when you go back there, it's kind of shocking <laughs> how how loud it is. <laughs> but, uh, and how few things are painted uh, uh, adobe color and yeah. uh, aquamarine. Yeah, aquamarine and adobe, yes, are, are rare colors in New York. Uh, uh, it smells better here in Santa Fe, too. <laughs> Do you have any uh, super secret projects that you're working on now? Um, not really. I've actually been thinking about writing some more deep thoughts that I haven't written for like at least ten years, um, and see just see if how they come out or, or if they develop into something else. Um, 
otherwise, I you know I have a movie script that's been kicking around forever. It's called uh, Harv the Barbarian that uh, <laughs> keeps keeps getting picked up and and. For a while, it was attached to uh, uh, Hollywood megastar Rob Schneider. Yes, yes. Rob wanted to do it. He loved uh, the character, and uh, uh, it didn't happen with him, and now another company has bought it, and that's been kicking around for years. But I I sort of am at a stage in my life where I just want to do print stuff, you know, television, and television's great to make money, and, and... Movies I don't really know about that much, but you know you kind of want to have some control over your work uh, later on. Well, Jack, I, I sure appreciate you taking the taking the time to come on the Sound of Young America. It was it was really a pleasure to have you. Thanks. Well, thank thank you, Jesse. I, I, it was nice talking to you. And uh, hello out there, Young America. Be be young. <laughs> <laughs> That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's Radio Sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself. Interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. The two long clips you heard from Jack Handy's new book were both from pieces produced originally for Studio 360. I love Studio 360. Thanks to them for letting us use them. You can find them online at studio360.org. There's also a free podcast, which you can find in your iTunes. We also featured some deep thoughts. They're from Jack's website, deepthoughtsbyjackhandy.com. Special thanks to Jim Williams at New Mexico Public Radio, as well as David Beach in Santa Cruz, and Bill Brasky from thespecialthing.com, who dropped a few knowledge bombs on me. Remember, there's still like... 36 hours left in the maximum fund drive so if you haven't given please do and to all those of you who have thank you so very 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 much i i really couldn't appreciate it more and it was really uh an honor to uh to be supported by all of you and hey listen uh, on the low if anybody's got a video copy of tales of fraud and malfeasance and railroad hiring practices you know who to send it to We'll see you next time on The Sound of Young America. Mm